Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. Thank you so much, Pastor. Let me invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of Luke in chapter number 10. The book of Luke in chapter 10, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 25, Luke chapter 10 and and verse number 25. And again, it certainly is a real privilege to be back at Riverview Baptist Church and how thankful I am for your faithfulness to the Lord. And I'm grateful and thankful for your love for Christ and love for his word. And we're trusting and and, uh, praying that God would do great works in these days. It's still the preaching of the cross to this old pagan world that's foolishness and why they laugh and say you mean your pastor like opens the bible and preaches and come on doesn't don't you know that went out with the dark ages and and uh, why you still believe the blood shed on a cross 2,000 years ago can wash sins away oh my we certainly do thus saith the lord and how we desperately need to go back to this book and back to the god of this book i'm thankful for your pastor's love for the word of god and yours as well we are praying and trusting the lord Lord, to do wonderful works in these days. Thank you for, again, for a good, warm welcome this morning. How we are trusting God for this entire meeting to see him do something powerful. You have your Bible to the book of Luke in chapter number 10 this morning. You know, we're jumping into the Lord Jesus as he makes a slow, long journey that started up in the northern part of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. And and ultimately, Jesus would make his way to the city of Jerusalem where he would die. Probably by the time we come to Luke chapter Chapter 10, Jesus has made his way across the Jordan River in what today would be modern-day Jordan. And uh, a lot of the miracles, a lot of the greatest preaching took place in that part of the world. And the Word of God tells us that as we interrupt this journey of Jesus now, this long, slow journey to Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 10, verse number 25, the Bible says, And behold, a, a certain lawyer stood up. Now, when you read that phrase, a certain lawyer, you have to look at this through first century eyes in the place called Israel. We would obviously look at that and think, well, there's a graduate of Harvard, you know, there's somebody from Yale Law School and this lawyer is going to stand up. But understand, in our day, of course, our law theoretically is supposed to be the Constitution. (laughs) That's what they tell us anyway. Whether it is or it isn't, I'm not exactly sure sometimes. But understand, if you lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, the law of the land, well, it wasn't a constitution. The law of the land literally was the book of Leviticus. It was the book of Deuteronomy. So when the Bible talks about a lawyer in Bible times, it is not a man who's an expert in the Constitution. It is a man who is an expert in the Old Testament, in the Bible. In the book of Luke, 15 times these people are called scribes. Six times they are called lawyers. One time one of them is referred to as a teacher of the law. But when you read that word lawyer in verse number 25, you have to understand we are talking about a man who is an undisputed spiritual leader of the people. And while we would read the word lawyer through American eyes and we would think of somebody standing up in a courtroom in the county, somebody with a law degree from the university, well, a lawyer in Bible times is what you and I would know as a theologian. 
It was somebody who was famous in the seminary. It was somebody that had learned the great laws of Israel from the Bible. And as we look at lawyers in the book of Luke, we also should point out they were the ones who were constantly following Jesus to see if they could find fault. Why The lawyers are there with their clipboards and their pens, and they want Jesus to say just the wrong thing, do just the wrong thing. They are the professional critics of the Lord Jesus. So with that in mind, we come to Luke chapter 10, verse number 25. And the Bible says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? And he answering said, Thou shalt, uh, How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Father, we ask for your help now as we open your word. I pray you'd help us put away the distractions of the world and our own personal thinking. And and may we come to the Bible and say, Lord, speak to me. Father, I ask for someone, perhaps in this room, maybe someone listening online today who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great day to call upon the name of the Savior. I pray for your people. The word of God would do mighty works as we give ourselves to you for the preaching of the Bible in Jesus great name I pray. Amen. There's one more thing we need to know about Mr. Lawyer in our story this morning. The man is crooked. He is as phony a crooked lawyer as a man could be. Would you notice in verse number 25 where the Bible tells us that a certain lawyer stood up. In New Testament times, both the teacher and the students would sit in a classroom. And yet if a student in the classroom had something to ask the teacher, they would stand up to show great respect. And so when we come to verse number 25, we picture in our mind this lawyer sitting in the class, so to speak, as as Jesus is teaching them. and, And everything looks so proper, doesn't it? Why, the gentleman is going to stand up. And at least on the outside, he is showing great respect for Jesus Christ. But you know, the Lord knows the heart of humans. And while the outside looks impressive as Mr. Lawyer stands up, on the inside, Jesus exposes him for what he is. For the Bible tells us there was a motive. He stood up to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all a trap. He is going to try to get Jesus to say something he will regret. He's going to get Jesus to do something he doesn't want to do. So this crooked lawyer stands up with one purpose. He is going to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever been in a class with somebody like this? You know, you know, have you ever, you find this especially, maybe not in high school as much, but you certainly get this at the college level. There's always somebody who thinks they're smarter than the teacher, you know, and, and why there's always somebody that even when they ask a question, it's not because they want to learn. It's not because they really want to know. They ask the question so they could let everybody else know how smart they are. Have you ever, have you ever seen somebody like that? I, I got to tell you, they seem to take over a whole class. There's just, there's something about them that just says, you know, what's wrong with you? And that's what Mr. Lawyer's like in our story. Oh, he stands up. You have great respect now. He's going to show great deference to the rabbi teacher, Jesus. He's going to show great honor to him. And yet it's all a sham. For the Bible exposes his dirty heart for what it is. He stands up for one reason, and that is to tempt, to ridicule, 
to try to break the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does so with a question. And when you read this question in verse number 25, I hope and I pray this morning that as you sit in this place and you hear this question, that the sirens start sounding in your heart. And I hope that the lights start flashing and you look at it and say, my, there is something really wrong with this. You would think a lawyer, you would think a specialist in the Bible, you would think a theologian could do better than this. But look at his question. It's all wrong. Master, he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I hope that everything in your heart is saying that question is all wrong and we ought to look at it like that. And and I mean, we can just look at it quickly, can't we? And say, wait a minute, when it comes to eternal life, Jesus is not the master or the teacher. When it comes to eternal life, Jesus is the only savior. When it comes to eternal life, did you hear the man say, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if I could paraphrase Ronald Reagan here this morning, when it comes to going to heaven, I is not the solution. I is the problem. When it comes to eternal life, the word do is the wrong word. The man said, what shall I do? No, you got the wrong word, man. The right word is the word done. It is not I do this and you do this and we do this. If we're going to go to heaven, it will be because of a work already done by Jesus Christ on the cross. And number four, when we look at the question, the man thought there was something he could do to inherit eternal life. Now, it is true that after we are born into the family of God, after we are born into the family of God, eternal life is a spiritual inheritance. However, this man's thinking says, I'm an Israelite. I have been born Jewish. Because I'm a Jewish man, I automatically inherit eternal life. And nothing could be further from the truth. Hey, young people, you will never go to heaven because your mom and your dad are saved. There is no salvation gene that somehow gets passed down to young people. You need to understand that as your dad or your mom... We're born into the family of God, so you have to have the exact same moment in your life. The Bible tells us, though, spiritual life, eternal life, is an inheritance. It is inheritance only for those who have been born into the family of God. So when you look at the question, it's beautiful, isn't it? Mr. Scholar, Mr. Theologian, you think you could do better than that. I mean, for a man who impresses himself with his own knowledge, he really asks a question that is awfully dumb. Master. No, Savior. What shall I, wrong person, what shall I do, wrong word, to inherit? Nope, you don't inherit eternal life. Everything about the question is all wrong. But what I find fascinating is the response of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I will promise you that had been most of us, Brother Bockhaus and I probably would have done this. We would have looked at him and said, man, what school did you go to? I hope you go get a refund. But whoever taught you, they taught you all wrong. I got to tell you, there are a lot of things we do, not the least of which is probably enter into a debate with the gentleman. But notice what Jesus does. I mean... This is amazing. He wasn't even in Sunday school this morning and he did this. Well, what do you know? Jesus said, what is written in the law? How readest thou? In Bible times, man would go to the synagogue and when it was his turn to read the scriptures, the leader of the synagogue would say to him, how readest thou? It is our way of saying, what does the Bible say? Well, who would have guessed it? Instead of getting into an argument, instead of getting into a debate, instead of screaming, you know, my professor's got more degrees than your professor has, he 
he looks at this theologian who is so stuck on himself and so stuck in his religion, and the Lord Jesus says, well, what does the Bible say? How readest thou? You, you have a Bible. You've memorized the Bible. What does the Bible say? Now, this is an extraordinary moment in time because we have a man that's trying to trip up the Lord Jesus, trying to embarrass him for the ages, and he says, good minister, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a silly question that is. And now, instead of embarrassing him back, instead of getting into an argument and shaking a fist at him, no, the Lord Jesus looks at him and says, all right then, man, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? How readest thou? And to give some credit to the gentleman, he accurately quotes the Word of God. In verse 27, he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. So at first he is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, then he will quote from Leviticus chapter 19. And might I say he gets it right. He is accurately quoting the Bible. It's interesting when he says you need to love the Lord, he said first you need to love him with all your heart. Now in America, the heart is where we find our emotions. You know, I love with all my heart. However, in the Bible, it's a little different. In Bible times, the heart was the home of your rational decisions. So it was the place where you would make choices, decisions. Then when he said you have to love the Lord with all your soul, well, in Bible times, the soul was the home of your desires. So it is not just with your heart, kind of with your thinking. Now in your, in your soul, when you love the Lord, you're going to love him with all of your want to, with all of your desires. Then when he says you love the Lord with all your strength, well, that means you love him with your hands, with your feet. You love him with all of your flesh. You love him the way that you live your life. And then when you love him with all of your mind, well, to them, as with us, the mind was the place of your thinking. So when you listen to the man's response, Jesus said, how am you going to go to heaven? Uh, what are you going to do to inherit eternal life? The man says, well, you have to love the Lord. And I mean, love him entirely. You have to love him with your wish. You have to love him with your want to. You have to love him with all of your physical strength. You have to love him in your thinking. Why, you have to love God and you have to love him every hour of every day. You have to have a love for God that transcends every area of your life. And if that weren't enough, he adds the words, you have to love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, extraordinary. Jesus is talking to this gentleman, and this gentleman scholar stands up, Mr. Theologian, the lawyer, stands up with a wicked heart to tempt Jesus, and he said, good master, what do I do to inherit eternal life? What a wrong question that is. And yet the Lord Jesus says, okay, man, what does the Bible say? And he says, well, if you're going to go to heaven, you're going to have to love the Lord completely with every fiber of your body, and then you have to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what is the most stunning thing about this chapter, I'm quite certain, is verse number 28. Because, you know, when I read that verse, I'm thinking, whoa, no, wait a minute. I mean, how does this line up to the Word of God? This man is thinking, I can go to heaven if I love the Lord and if I love my neighbor. And why are there not more than a hundred verses in the New Testament? A hundred texts that tell us it is not by works of righteousness. We preach in Sunday school from the book of Galatians. And the theme of the book of Galatians is not by works, not by works, not by works. You're not saved by works. You don't stay saved by works. And with all of that in mind, we come to verse number 28 and to this gentleman scholar who has just told Jesus, you go to heaven by loving the Lord and loving your neighbor. Jesus said this, thou hast answered right, this do 
and thou shalt live. And I got to tell you, more than one of us is kind of scratching our heads saying, well, what kind of answer is that? I mean, aren't you supposed to say, well, the Bible says not by works of righteousness, which we have done. The Bible says heaven is for him that worketh not. The Bible tells us by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Uh, I mean, aren't there different responses that we would expect? But notice carefully what Jesus said. This do and thou shalt live. The important thing to understand in the response of Jesus is that word do. Remember the question. The man says, you tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life. You tell me what to do. You tell me what good work to do. You tell me what prayer to pray. You tell me what religion to join. There must be something I can do to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus said, all right, then what does the Bible say? And he goes to his law book. He goes to the Old Testament law. He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, we usually think of the law, we kind of think of Ten Commandments. The truth of the matter is there were 613 of them. And if this guy was going to go to heaven by keeping the law and by doing what's right, I, I mean, he's only come up with two of them. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. What about the other 611? But no, Jesus didn't even get into that. He says, all right, man, if you want to do something to go to heaven, he said, this thing about loving the Lord and loving your neighbor, you do that. And yet that word do doesn't mean you do it one time in your life. Oh, no. No, the word do means you do this every day. You do this every hour of every day. You do this every minute of every hour. Excuse me, you do this every second of every minute. From here on out, for the rest of your life, every moment of every hour of every day, of every month, of every year, until you die, every single moment you have to keep on doing this. In other words, if you never sin, you're okay. You're going to go to heaven. Well, now that's a problem, isn't it? Because the guy's starting to think to himself, you mean if I'm going to go to heaven by loving my neighbor, i got to love my neighbor every hour of every day for the rest of my life? You know, we've got great neighbors in Arizona. So sometimes he listens in. Joe and Linda, if you're listening, i got great neighbors. But maybe you don't. You know, for us, my wife and I, to love our neighbors, that's no problem. But for some of you to love your neighbor, you might think that's a pretty big problem for us. And if I'm going to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, forget the other 612 laws, but if I'm going to go to heaven by loving my neighbor as myself, why, that's a pretty tall order. You don't know how hard that is. And Jesus said, no, if you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, then you better do this and never stop doing this for the rest of your life, every hour of every day. There better not be a moment where you don't love your neighbor and love God. How are you going to do with that? So do you know what the lawyer does? In verse number 20, he does what the lawyers always do. He looks for a loophole. The Bible says, and he willing to justify himself. Isn't that what religion does? See, religion wants to say there's something you can do. Oh, I know religion's got different do's and don'ts, but at the end of the day, it's all the same. You do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But if you get the don'ts right, and if you get the do's right, then one day God's just going to welcome you into heaven as such a good person. And religion is all about doing certain things so you can go to heaven. But the problem with that is that Jesus said, all right, you're going to have to do this every hour of every day for the rest of your life. 
life. And he willing to justify himself. That's what religion always does. Religion always says, I'll justify myself. I'll make myself good enough for heaven. One day I'll go to heaven and say, I'm here because I love God. One day I'll go to heaven and say, I'm here because I love my neighbor. One day somebody thinks they'll go to heaven and say, I never hurt anybody. I was always a good boy. I was always a good girl. Religion constantly wants to justify themselves. And so notice how he does it in verse 29. He asked Jesus a question. Who is my neighbor? Now, that's a real big debate in the first century. Because the Jewish people kind of, like this gentleman, kind of come to the place where they think, well, you know, if I'm going to go to heaven by loving my neighbor, then I better make sure that I love my neighbor. So they found the technicality. They found the way of saying, I can only love the neighbors that I already love. You know, that neighbor down the street, I don't have to love him. Uh, A neighbor that lives across the block, I don't have to love him. So they got into this big argument, this big technical argument about who is my neighbor. Now, remember the setting. The man comes to Jesus, stands up in the classroom, and Mr. Theologian says, how can I inherit? What do I do to go to heaven? And Jesus said, well, if you want to do something to go to heaven, then you love the Lord and you love your neighbor and you never stop loving them. Every hour of every day, you keep doing this and you shall live. And the man realizing, well, that's pretty tough because I got some neighbors that aren't so easy to love. He asked the $100,000 question. He said, so who is my neighbor? Now, it's fascinating that Jesus picks on this, isn't it? Because there's so many different things that Jesus could have said and could have done. Because remember, there's 613 laws. But no, no, we're going to forget the other 612. The man asked the question, who is my neighbor? If I will go to heaven by loving my neighbor, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him. In verse number 30, Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You say, ah, here we go. The story of the Good Samaritan. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. He is never called the Good Samaritan in the Bible. Not one time. Don't look at me like that. I'm telling you, he isn't. Not one time is this fellow ever called the Good Samaritan. Do you know why? Because he's not a good Samaritan. He's a perfect Samaritan. You see, this is like one of the, this is really a rare moment. This is like actually a few verses in the Bible they could probably quote in a public school and not go to jail. I mean, this is actually one of those things in the Bible that everybody loves. Oh, the Good Samaritan. Be a Good Samaritan. Oh, they love this story. I remember as a boy growing up in church, right? A Sunday school teacher's point of view, you be a Good Samaritan. And I would suggest this morning that it's preposterous. It's an absolute impossibility. There's nobody in this building, nobody online, nobody anywhere that could even remotely possibly be like this Good Samaritan. And that's why the Bible never calls him a Good Samaritan. He's not. He is not a good Samaritan. He is a perfect Samaritan. See, the problem is that we love to come and pick little things out of the Bible and pick a little story out of the Bible and pick a little phrase out of the Bible that either makes us feel good or or kind of makes the point that we want to make. And the problem with that is that we miss the entire message of the story. And what most people think the story is teaching, the truth is Jesus is teaching the exact opposite. 
And when you let the story stay in the Word of God where it belongs, all of a sudden we see how it was set up with a religious man saying, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus saying, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says, love the Lord and love your neighbor. And he could have added, Jesus could have said, well, it says a lot more than that. But no, he says, okay, well then how are you doing with that? Because if you want to go to heaven by loving the Lord and loving your neighbor, you better do it every hour of every day. It better be the story of your life. And so we said, well, if i got to love my neighbor to go to heaven, who's my neighbor? We are talking about somebody who is trying to go to heaven by loving his neighbor. So Jesus said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a 17-mile road that starts in Jerusalem, goes down into Jericho, an incredibly dangerous road. I mean, now there's a super highway. It kind of weaves back and forth with a lot of switchbacks. But in Bible times, this was a very dangerous thing. Because as the road made its way down through the canyons, there were all kinds of caves where criminals could hide and bandits could hide. It was such a dangerous thing that in Bible times, this road was called the bloody way. There was so much death and carnage. So a certain man from Jerusalem went down to Jericho, and and notice the Bible tells us in verse 30 that he fell among thieves. It doesn't say he fell among a thief, he fell among thieves. So it is not one guy who robs him. No, these are organized bandits. The bandits come out from one of these caves, and they attack this man. The Bible says that he fell among thieves, and notice everything in the story matters. It says they stripped him of his raiment. So the thieves attack this man, and they take his clothing. They strip him of his raiment. Now, this is incredibly important because in Bible times, if you talk about who's your neighbor, who do I have to take care of and who do I have to show respect to? Well, in New Testament times in Israel, it all mattered where you fit in the social class. See, there were two things that mattered. You would look at somebody and you would know, do I need to show them respect? Do they need to show me respect? Do I need, are they higher than I am or am I higher than they are? And, and the two ways that you would know where somebody fit into society, number one, it is how they are dressed. And number two, it is how they speak. So if you would see a man, he would dress a way that would say, this is where I fit into society. And I would know, do I need to help you? Do I need to respect you? Or can I just ignore you? And when they come and they strip them of his raiment, we no longer know where this man fits into society. But keep going. They didn't just strip him of his raiment. The Bible says they wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. You know, we may think half dead kind of describes it, but in New Testament times, it's more than that. Half dead was a medical term. Uh, the Pharisees had different descriptions of people when they were sick. You know, it's kind of like going in a hospital and they got that little chart up there, you know, from one to ten. How do you feel? Well, well, in New Testament times, number nine on the list was half dead. And if you were half dead, it meant you were unconscious. If you were half Half dead, it means that you couldn't you couldn't talk. So the next thing after half dead is full dead. This is one stretch, one point away from being dead. The man, in other words, is unconscious. So there's two ways you would know. Do I need to respect this guy and help this guy? Number one, how is he dressed? He has no clothes. And number two, what kind of words does he speak? The ability, the way a man would speak tells you where he fits into society. But if the man's unconscious, he can't talk. 
So all of a sudden, this makes the story different, doesn't it? Here's a man, he's not dressed, and the man cannot talk. I don't know where he fits into society. Am I more important than him? Is he more important than I am? And the Bible tells us he's a breath away, so to speak, from death. And in verse number 31, by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. Now, the priest, no doubt, would be riding on a beast. The priests are in the upper crust of society. There are not many people that are below the priests in their way of thinking. So this guy can see the man. He knows there's a hurt body over here. But, you know, do I have to help him? Am I responsible for helping him? Is he my neighbor or not? And the priest comes by thinking, you know, that the chances that that guy is equal with me in society are about zero. I'm right here at the top, and that guy, he's got no clothes. That guy cannot talk. I don't know where he fits in, but most likely, he's not where I am, so this priest doesn't even care. The Bible tells us he passed by on the other side. Then in verse 32, likewise, a Levite. Now, the Levites, if we had our way of thinking in it, they'd be kind of like the assistant priests. The Levites were a rung below the priests, so we would kind of put them in middle class. And the Bible tells us this guy's got a little more responsibility now, for the Levite comes by, and when he came to the place, it says he came and looked on him. You know, he's one of these guys that, if he had a cell phone, he'd probably call 911. I mean, he comes and he sees the guy on the side of the road, and he at least looks at him, and, and he at least gives him a passing glance, because you got to think, you know, that guy could be where I am. I mean, it may be I'm bound by the law to help him. Now, if he's below me, if he's in the lower class, don't have to worry about it. But, you know, he could be in my class or he could be in the upper class, and I'd be in trouble if I didn't help him. So, well, he can't talk and he's not dressed. I really don't know. And, and at least this guy looks on him. You know, isn't that kind of like where America is? It's not like they're going to do anything to help, but... I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put a band around my wrist. And that way, when everybody sees the band, they'll know how much I care. I'm not going to give any money, and I'm not going to give any time, and I'm not going to give any energy. But I will show everybody how good I am by putting a a band around my wrist. And, And, you know, it's not like that guy was helped. He's still unconscious, bleeding to death on the side of the road. He's still going to die if somebody doesn't care. But, you know, at least the guy could say, I care. I'm not like the priest. At least I care. But whether you care or you don't care, it doesn't matter if the guy's still bleeding to death on the side of the road. So here comes Mr. Priest. That's not my problem. I'm higher, almost for sure. Here comes the second man, the Levite. You know, I I better take a look here, but, uh, you know, I really can't tell. So whether he cares or not, the Bible tells us that he passed by on the other side. And so we come to the point of the story, don't we? Because if you and I were sitting there 2,000 years ago, and we joined the crowd that was in that classroom, as Mr. Levi, I'm sorry, as as Mr. Scribe stands up and says, tell me, what do I do to go to heaven? And he engages the conversation, and he's trying to do his way to heaven by loving his neighbor as himself. Well, now he asked the question, who's my neighbor? And we would join the crowd and listen to Jesus tell the story about a Jewish priest and about a Jewish Levite. Well, point number three in the story, you would expect a Jewish common man to come by. And that's not what happens. It says in 33, a certain Samaritan as he journeyed. All right, you read that, and I read that with zero reaction. But if we were in the classroom that day, and Jesus said after the Jewish priest, after the Jewish Levite, the next guy to come along was a Samaritan. You know what that would be like? That would be like running your fingernails down the chalkboard. Do you know the problem? 
is that everybody under the age of 30 has no idea what that sounds like. You know, if you have never heard a mean old teacher run her fingernails down a chalkboard, you have never lived. You know what I'm trying to say? You're missing something in your life. There was nothing quite like that, is there? And that pretty much would be the description of that word Samaritan. And as soon as they heard that the blood pressure rises, everything is boiling a little bit because the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And by the way, the Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews. And they looked at them. They're from Samaria. They're from up there in the north. They're troublemakers. I Right back to their heritage. They're not like us. There is all kinds of racial hatred, all kind of animosity in this certain Samaritan came to where he was. And notice what the Bible tells us. We come to verse 33, and and there's an incredibly important word in these next few verses. It's the word and. Now, now, you know, when we read or we write, right? You remember back in school, if you kept using the word and, 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 the English teacher would say, no, you don't do that. You get rid of the word and and you put a comma in there. However, the linguist professor at the university would tell us, no, wait a minute, there is a reason to do this. And when you come to a text like this in the Bible, and there's many of them, and you see the word and, 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 there's a big fancy term for it. It's called polysyndenton. Did you impress with that? All that means is Google knows what a polysyndenton is. But, but, you know, the word means that, no, no, there's a, there's a reason for this. And when you see the word and, and, it's kind of God's way of saying, I know you humans. And I know you'll come to a list of things and you'll put it on cruise control and you'll fly right through. But God says, don't do that here. It's a way of saying, I want you to notice every single one of these things. A certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to the inn, and took care of him, and on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come, I will repay. That's incredible. See, the man is saying, what do I do to go to heaven? And Jesus turns it back on him. What does the Bible say? It says you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? You want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor? Jesus says this is how you've got to love your neighbor. No, no, no. If you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, for somebody who you don't even know on the side of the road, this is how you have to love them. That's why this is not the story of a good Samaritan. It's the story of a perfect Samaritan. Now, look at the list. Number one, he came to the man. Uh, he came to the man. He approached him. Excuse me, but you remember those bandits are still there. Those bandits are somewhere in those caves. They, they're not going anywhere. He didn't get attacked by one guy going the other direction. This was an organized group of bandits that attacked him. And the man had to know if they got him, they could easily get me. So he's putting his life at great risk to help somebody who he doesn't even know. He came to him and he saw the man. And then the Bible says he has compassion. Excuse me, that word compassion, it's the strongest appropriate word in New Testament times. It's a word that many had great love for him, that he loved them with all of his being. It's a word that is a word of great affection. It's a word of great love. He has the deepest of love for him. We can't do this. How do you love somebody you don't even know? How do you love somebody that's not even like you? How do you love somebody for all the reasons why you shouldn't? And this good Samaritan. Samaritan loves the man with all of his heart. Then the Bible says that he went to him. The priest ignored him. 
oh, the Levite put the band around his wrist, but ultimately he didn't do anything. But no, this guy is going to risk his life, and he goes to him. Then the Bible says that he bound up his wounds. I'm sorry, you don't travel with first aid kits back then. In other words, he's got to take his own clothes and rip his own robe so that he can make bandages to bind up his wounds. The Bible says that he poured in the oil and the wine. Oil would have been used to soothe the pain. Wine would have been used for disinfectant. It kind of tells us the man was so battered and so bloodied. Usually the wine would go first and the oil would go second. But the man must have been in such bad shape he pours in the oil and then he uses the disinfectant. Now the Bible says he put him on his own beast, probably a mule. He's going to have to walk the rest of the way. He has just taken one of the most coveted things that he has and he puts this unknown man bleeding to death on his own animal. Now the Bible says that he brought him to the inn. There are no inns between Jerusalem and Jericho today. There's absolutely no indication that there ever would have been an inn on such a dangerous, bloody road. In New Testament times, that means the next inn would have been in the city of Jericho. Can you imagine how dangerous that would have been? A Samaritan coming into Jericho with a half-dead, a, a, a bloody, beaten Jewish man. Now I tell you, we don't appreciate that, but one guy wrote it like this. This Samaritan showing up with this man would have been like an American Indian in 1875 showing up at Dodge City with a dead cowboy on the back of his horse. In other words, nobody's going to ask what happened. This guy is putting his own life on the line to save a man he doesn't even know. Now the Bible says he took care of him. The Bible says that he gave him his own money. The Bible says he paid the owners to care for him. And not only did he pay for the owner to care for him, he paid for the owners to keep on caring for him. A, a wounded man has got no money. It's why he was attacked. So this man takes out his own purse, his own wallet, and, and he pays him. And, and in Bible times, if you were in an inn, and not like today, if you didn't pay the bill, you were out. You say, well, that guy's bloody and beaten, and he's in bad shape. Tough, man. There was no care. They threw him right out onto the streets. So this Samaritan not only paid for the guy to stay and paid for his medical care, the word of God tells us he paid two pence. In Bible times, two pence would have been enough money for the guy to stay in the room for, for two weeks. For two weeks, he takes care of the man. For days, he not only takes care of his medical expenses, he takes care of the place for him to stay. You talk about an incredible story for a man that he doesn't even know, a man that he can't even describe, he doesn't even know his name. He gives him his mule, his car, so to speak. He rips his clothes to save his life. Why? He brings him to an end at personal risk, and he pays for the man's medical care, and he pays for the man's place to stay. See, this is not a good Samaritan. He does what nobody else in the world would ever do. And Jesus is saying, if you want to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, really, that's how you're going to go to heaven? Well, then you're going to have to love everybody in the world just like that guy does. No, no, no. Not one time. Not one time 15 years ago you did something nice for the neighbor down the street. Oh, no. No, you're going to have to do this every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year for the rest of your life. You're going to have to do this and keep on doing this. This is going to have to be how you treat your friends. It's going to have to be how you treat your strangers. It's going to have to be how you treat absolutely everybody. You're going to have to rip your clothes to save their lives to do risky things, to pay their bills, to give them your car, to give them transportation, to take care of their medical issues, to put a place. I mean, this is how, if you want to work your way to heaven by loving your neighbor, this is how you got to love your neighbor, even if you don't even know their name. 
So how you doing? You're probably doing about as good as I am right now. You see, religion comes to this story and says, be a good Samaritan. If you want to go to heaven, you better be a good Samaritan. And that's the exact opposite. Jesus is saying, you can't be a good Samaritan. You see, religion says, well, we got Ten Commandments. Not really, 613. But let's say there were Ten Commandments. How are you doing with the Ten Commandments? Uh, religion says, oh, you got to keep these Ten Commandments. And if you want to go to heaven, you better keep the commandments. How are you doing keeping the commandments? The truth is, I, I, I think if we had enough time, we could spend a few minutes on each one and we'd all be shaking our heads saying, I'm zero for ten. And that's not even including the other up to 613. You see, religion says God gave us the law so you can do this and do this and do this and do this and then you can go to heaven. And the Bible tells us God gave us the law for a very different reason. So that when we read those commandments and say, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I need somebody to save me. The story of the Good Samaritan is not saying you be a Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan is saying you can't be a Good Samaritan. And forget the other 612. If you're going to try to go to heaven by loving your neighbor, this is how you got to love neighbors you don't even know. you got to love them every day. Of every, and you and I are supposed to look at that and shake our head and say, oh, I can't be like that. I can't possibly do that. If I'm going to die and go to hell because I can't love my neighbor, I need somebody to rescue me. I need somebody to save me. And you know, he could have stopped at the one thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Really? You love the Lord with all your heart? Really? I love him with all my want to? Really? That's what he's the only one we think about. We give him absolutely everything. We don't love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our minds. You know, there are a lot of other laws, right? Oh, yeah, I go to heaven. I've never committed adultery. Oh, really? Unless you've looked at a woman to lust after her. Oh, I've never hated anybody. I love everybody. Really? Because if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. Yeah, yeah, but you understand, every time we try to get self-righteous, all the Bible does is flip it right back in our faces and we realize even my self-righteous acts are dirty rags. In other words, when the story's all said and done, we're not supposed to be pointing a finger saying, be a good Samaritan. We're supposed to be pointing thumbs backwards saying, I can't, I can't. And when we come to the place where we realize there is no goodness in me and we realize that I can't earn a home in heaven and I can't my work my way to heaven. I am the lost man. There's nothing I can do. There is no hope in works. There is no hope in what I say. No hope in what I do. No hope in what I pray. That's when we're ready to come to the Bible and read 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for example. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. We read, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we come to the story of Good Samaritan, the man who thinks they can go to heaven by loving their neighbors themselves, we come to the end of the story saying, I'm in big trouble. Big trouble is good. Because big trouble realizes, I cannot save myself by my works. I need a savior.
My friend, if you'll come to that place where you realize a sinner like me is never going to do anything to go to heaven. When we come to that place where we understand I am the sinner and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we're ready to humble ourselves and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him to wash away our sins. When we finally come to the place where we realize I cannot work my way to heaven, we're ready to see there is a Savior who died to wash our sins away. See your Savior this morning? Do you know Him as your Savior? If not, I plead with you to call upon the name of Christ and be saved. I wonder if somebody listening online today say, you know, I'm tired of working my way to heaven. There's not the church that I join. It's not the money I give. I am a desperate sinner who needs the Savior. What a day to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. My Father, I ask and pray that you would do a work now that a preacher cannot do in hearts and lives. For someone without Jesus, may today be the day they're saved. Lord, for your people, may the word of God stir our hearts. Would you remind us how desperate sinners are without the Savior? All the works of righteousness, all the clothes of religion can never save. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. In a moment, I'm going to finish praying. And yet before I do, I wonder if somebody in this room would say, Preacher, I'm not saved. I don't know that I'm going to heaven. I need you to pray for me. I want to know from the Bible that Jesus is my Savior. Is there somebody like that? If you'd lift your hand, I'd love to be able to pray for you. I'd love to be able to help you from God's Word. Preacher, pray for me. I want to know from the Bible that Jesus is my Savior. Is there somebody like that this morning? Pray for me. Pray for me. I need to be saved. I wonder if somebody listening online today, you'd say, Preacher, I'm not saved, and I don't know that Christ is my Savior. Oh, my friend, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I'd plead with you to, even right now, stop everything and go to the Word of God to understand that I'm the sinner who needs the Savior. What a great day to call upon the name of the Lord. If you're listening online, you say, I need somebody to help me and guide me. We're going to invite people to come and meet Pastor Bachhaus and let him help them right from God's word in this place. He would give you the same invitation today and many different ways to contact him. Would you do that this afternoon? Would you make that contact, that text, that email? Say, Pastor, help me from the Bible. Guide me. I want to know Christ is my Savior. Oh, Father, may we understand that heaven is for those who realize not by works which we have done, not by the deeds we try to do. Or may we understand that if we will try to go to heaven by loving our neighbor or any other good work, at the end of the day, we're only exposed as to how sinful and guilty we truly are. May the sinner fall on the mercies of Jesus and be saved. I pray it in his great name. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus. And I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530 63 
Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.